of uh, people, not just today, but always. And uh, we're talking now about identity. Uh, Lisa, thank you for securing the door. Leave one door open. Thank you very, very much, Lisa Newman. Now, would you, um, I'm going to sum up what I've said again, because we, we try to do these as self-contained classes, and then, uh, and then talk a little bit about the presenting symptom, and then apply it to the presenting symptom. Uh, the verse I'd like to uh, ask you to read with me is uh, in the middle of a sentence, but it's the beginning of verse 9 and 10, and I'm continuing to go with the same scripture each week. Uh, because uh, the uh, argument here, which he repeats in a different way in Romans chapter 4, is very, very uh, significant and has everything to do with how you see yourself. So let's read it one more time, verses 9 and 10. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, Stop. Full stop. Stop right there. Thank you, Claire. <clears throat> now, the, uh, the fundamental um, idea, as I've tried to uh, explain uh, week after week, is that, uh, thank you, uh, is that um, human identity does not exist. <clears throat> That's the highly debatable first proposition, that human identity does not exist because it is too fluid and too changeable and too projected a concept. Uh, that is to say, identity is constantly changing in the way people see themselves, depending on where they are in life and what's happened to them and how others define them and so forth. It's constantly changing. You can define yourself so differently in your uh, late teens then you might, if, you, if, you're, if you're a very beautiful, but obviously you don't believe it, uh, uh, attractive, successful student in college, but then find yourself at age 33, uh, like Chrissy Hind uh, in the song uh, Stuck in the Middle, if you find yourself divorced and a single mother and bitter, your, your identity has radically altered between your uh, late teens and your early 30s. Or if you see yourself as someone who really came from the other side of the tracks <clears throat> and really uh, did, did, had, had very little to offer in terms of what the world seems to think is important, and for one reason or another you became extremely successful in a given <clears throat> aspect of life, uh, you, you, you're, you're thrown, you're, you're shocked. Are you who you were or are you who you have become and what's the difference? This is, so identity is very fluid and also a lot of it has to do with projection. Very often people define you not according to how you feel but how they see you and that may be of course very different from how you see yourself and I, my, I constantly saw this in regard to women that I thought were beautiful in our early ministry, Mary's and mine in New York, who I, when I got to know them better, found out that they did not see themselves as beautiful at all, often quite the contrary. And therein lies the origin of things like what we now call today eating disorders. But that was just one of a trillion examples. And sometimes somebody who, who I thought you know, was the absolute cat's meow in terms of worldly pedigree, turned out to have come from a completely different world uh, than the world that he appeared to come from. So identity doesn't exist. That's human identity on its own terms doesn't exist. The second idea is that if it did exist, it would merit damnation. 
a strong statement, but that's because <coughs> if we actually did have an identity that was actually intrinsically our own as opposed to someone else, that would immediately set the stage for what? Self-righteousness. If I have something by virtue of my own possession of it, which you don't have, I have two responses. Either I, I will be self-righteous towards you, uh, or I will be in despair because I have a disability or a problem that I wish I didn't have and I perceive you as not having it. So that's the origin of all sibling rivalry. I've just given you the clue to all sibling rivalry. It has to do with, with an identity based upon something intrinsic, which I think I have, but she doesn't have. Or she has something that I don't have. And therefore, I either uh, am in despair uh, about it, or I have contempt. Remember, again, the pretender's song, uh, pity when you lie, contempt when you cry. Uh, you know, she, her lover comes begging her, you know, to come back to him, and she has pity when you lie, contempt when you cry. Uh, uh, Self-righteousness is the price of human identity, or despair is the price of human identity. And anyone who has a child in high school, or has been in high school, knows about those two prices. You're either out, or you're in. Who of us did not envy Dobie Gray? What song did Dobie Gray sing in the early 60s? Anybody remember? I'm in with the in crowd. I do what the in crowd does. I go with the in crowd. I wear what the in crowd wears. Baby, well, I mean, that's, that's the essence of why human identity deserves damnation. By the way, read what happened to Dobie Gray. Now, the second, the third point was that identity <coughs> is a gift. I'm only rehearsing this to get you back into the emotional, uh, to give you a little emotional time to get you back before we talk about singleness and marriedness. Um, the idea is that, um, is that uh, identity in religious terms, in Christianity at least, <coughs> is uh, not something that is intrinsic, but it is something that is extrinsic extrinsic. In other words, my identity in Christian uh, theology and in experience is blessedly given to me from outside myself as opposed to something that I create, muster, or develop. And the power of that is because if it comes outside myself, it cannot be tainted. If it's from God, it, it will be perfect. And secondly, I can't mess it up. If it, if it comes to me from outside myself, it is like real love. It is, when, it is when you are loved because the person loves you, not because of anything about you, you're much more secure. If, if, if she loves me because she thinks I'm a certain kind of person, but deep down I know that I'm not that kind of person, I'm really another kind of person, what will she do when she finds out? She will, will she stop loving me? It's possible. And this is why very often people are very afraid about telling secrets or t letting themselves really be known by another because they fear what? That if I'm revealed uh, who I actually am, he will then withhold his love from me and therefore I keep up a front. And this happens in the world in all experiences. And so the love of God, which is called the righteousness based on faith, not on law, righteousness based on law would be a value based on some form of intrinsic or self-generated performance. And the righteousness based on faith is something that is given to me. I trust that she loves me. Um, I trust that she loves me. I trust that my mother loves me. I don't have to work to get my mother to love me. And interestingly enough, any of you who have children or have been in the situation, the more problems your child has, the more you love them. It's the irony. 
The sicker your child is, the more needy your child, that's the child that breaks your heart. That's the child for whom the love flows preternaturally. There are exceptions, but for the most part, you are bound up. Someone told us the other day a powerful thing, powerful thing. <coughs> she said to me, you have to understand that our eldest daughter, much older people, has a particular emotional hold on my husband and myself. And I said, why? I said, because our eldest daughter has had so many issues and troubles and problems. She is the one who still, we still are, are deeply involved and deeply invested because there are so many problems. And I heard this very directly from someone. So what we uh, find is that love, when it is a gift, is secure and it is certain and I cannot mess it up. And that's what the Bible calls the righteousness of faith. The righteousness from God through faith, not the righteousness by virtue of the law or performance. Now, whether you're with me or not, that's important to say. So I've, first, I've given you a summary. Now, let me throw a, a completely different word in. It's an announcement I have to make before the end of the class. Uh, Mike Hill, the Bishop of Buckingham, uh, has a clergyman, a wonderful clergyman in his diocese in Buckinghamshire, uh, who uh, really would love dearly to come to the Advent and spend with his wife two months uh, in our community. Mike Hill, the Bishop of Buckingham, believes that this community could really be a wonderful place for this couple. They're a lovely, experienced uh, rector of family. In in, uh, in the, just a man and his wife from the uh, Diocese of Buckingham in England. And if anyone here has a place where they could sort of have like a sort of a little apartment or a kind of a garage place or a little place where they could live independently for the month of November, I would love to know. We have December covered through the Advent House. But if anybody has a thought, just give me a call this week uh, because it's lovely when someone says, you know, I think I could send this couple to Birmingham and they would be deeply, uh, it would be a wonderful period in their lives, and that makes me very encouraged. I just mentioned that. Now, having given you the three points, let's look at identity and married with children and or single, and let's go through the categories of possible uh, difficulty here, and then I'm going to try to apply the theological principle to the life, but I really want to know your, your, your thoughts on this. This is a very heavy one. One of the <coughs> issues that I run into with single people especially if they've, they've, they've been single for a long time and they would like to get married, male or female. Let's say they've, they've been single for longer than they thought they would be and they really actively would like to be married uh, or have children or just be married and not be alone. Uh, because life, you know, man was not meant to be alone. That is, in fact, what the Bible uh, teaches. And that's not an attack upon aloneness. It's simply a truth. No one really, uh, with a few cases, exceptional cases, actively desires to be alone. I love to be alone quite a bit of the time. And uh, remember uh, what Andy Warhol said about the perfect restaurant? The perfect restaurant is an automat in New York. You get your pie and your food from these, uh, you put number 515, you put it on a tray, then you go into a complete plastic bubble and you sit and you watch television. <coughs> now that, of course, is my idea of heaven. But even for, a, even for someone like me, it wears thin. Even those of you who think you're never alone, you know, you're never alone. You've always got kids or a mom or a dad or uh, obligations or a husband or a wife. You're never, ever alone. What you would do, as Virginia Woolf wrote, for a room of your own, what you wouldn't do for a little time when you actually have it. Serious alone time. It men are especially bad on this one. It usually uh, sort of weakens after about 24 hours. 
There's some people who can use two weeks of it, and that would be great. But after two weeks, Robinson Crusoe time is not fun. So um, th there is the person who, uh, who, and what the price of being alone for a long time, whatever age you find this, whether you're, you've been widowed or whether you're divorced and alone, male or female, whether you've never been married and are young and alone, you, the price of aloneness is characteristically bitterness. What I find in people who are alone, whether it's they never intended to be divorced, this was the worst thing they could have imagined, they didn't ask for this, or whether they've been rejected by children, or whether they're alone for, uh, because it's never worked out for them to find true love. And it's, a, it's just what has happened in a sad and powerful manner. The price of, <coughs> of aloneness is bitterness, very often. And you even find this, but let me tell you, there are also people who are, well, we'll talk about this in a minute. This is the, the, the price of aloneness is, uh, is very often, but not always, a bitterness. And when I see a person moving from uh, aloneness and prayer and aloneness and sadness to aloneness and bitterness, then I'm, my, my antennae are out because that's a, that's a very sad case, a very true case, but it's a sadness about being alone uh, because you, it's the last thing you ever would have wanted. And the bitterness is a real issue. On the other hand, <coughs> you could be married with children and have a very, very difficult life. By the way, I don't think Mary and I believe, uh, and I really owe this to Mary, we believe that being a single parent is one of the most uh, challenging lifestyles known to the world. Uh, children were not meant to be ma uh, raised by one person. That's not an attack on anything. It's, just, it's, it's too hard work. Uh, it's too emotionally draining. Children were not meant to be married by one, uh, to be, to be uh, looked after by one person alone. Uh, it's been set up in the nature of things for a man and a woman to raise a child. And uh, when uh, a person, through uh, the way life has fallen, finds that they have to raise a child and make a living and relate to life and have no uh, rest, and uh, uh, so many of the adult, the single mothers of teenage boys that we know lead lives that are in he hell. They lead lives in hell uh, because the boys are usually so angry, so incredibly angry. There's no dad in the house. And very often it's the mother who's done everything to try to salvage this thing. And it wasn't her idea in the first place. Uh, we see tremendous difficulty. You can, a single mother can become, she doesn't have time to be bo uh, bitter often, but uh, she will become bitter. But there are single fathers, even in our family here, the Advent. There are single dads who, for a variety of reasons, I can count a whole bunch of them right now, <coughs> who for a variety of reasons are raising a child on their own, and it's very, very hard work emotionally. You can even be married and be um, apparently happy and be absolutely miserable. Now, of course, that's true of no one here. Uh, but it's possible, <laughs> it's possible to be married and yet to be absolutely miserable. I mean, if you, if you, no one of us has that soul scanner. Uh, but there are, I guarantee you, there are people in this community who, if you could see the profound, uh, powerful impasses that occur in the bedroom between the hours of 11 and 4 in the morning in all sorts of people's lives, many of them are quite happy in other ways, you would be astonished if you already don't know the impasses, the defeats, the arguments, the long-term frustration, sleepless nights, everything, the burning bed, Farrah Fawcett, remember? You would be amazed at how many people are married who you think maybe they must have it all, but in fact are profoundly miserable, caught up in a very debilitating and frustrating relationship. Um, and the truth is out. I hope you didn't read the article about Bob Crane in last Sunday's New York Times Magazine. 
It's one of the most depressing articles I've read in at least five days. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he was the, uh, I won't even go into it, but if you want to read a man whose double life was so astounding, Bob Crane was the actor who played Hogan, Colonel Hogan, in Hogan's Heroes. And it's recently come out that the astonishing double life that he led, which many people do, there are many people who have double lives, even here. There are many people who live double lives. I'm used to it. I, 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 I live five lives. No, I'm just kidding. I really don't. <coughs> uh, I really don't. Uh, but but uh, there are many people who do inside their heads. Bob Crane lived the double life not inside his head. And here, I always liked Hogan's Heroes. I always thought it was a stitch. Well, uh, the double life that Bob Crane left, uh, led, that led to his murder, uh, is to be seen to be believed. And I think it's terrible that Paul Schrader is doing a movie about it. I consider it profoundly devilish that anyone would want to make a movie about this particular thing unless there were some form of hope of which there was none. Now, I only say that because you can be married and have it all and yet have a completely different identity. Well, um, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, now, how can we apply the uh, picture of a value or an identity which is given to us by God, how can we apply that to the misery of being unwillingly single or possibly unwillingly married? But let's, let's talk about aloneness. Um, how can we apply uh, the power of this message to someone who finds themselves at this stage in their life alone and not thrilled. Now, um, I need to ask your help with this because it's too easy for me to say what I want to say. It's a little too easy for me to say that. And I've not been alone most of my life, um, except between the hours of one and four. That's just because I watch science fiction television. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, uh, but, but who, who, would, who would be able to apply uh, this uh, picture that one's identity is extrinsic to oneself in uh, uh, the concept of God uh, delivering to me an identity which I did not contribute to. How could this apply to the bitterness of being alone? Who wants to, who wants to uh, try a thought on that one? Give some, uh, who, who has something to say about how it's worked in your experience? Yes, tell me your first name again. Robin, I know exactly who you are, Robin. Yes. Wow, Robin, thank you very, very much. <clears throat> thank you so much. Who else wants to chime in? This is important. What Robin has said is very important. Uh, and, and I'd like to know what your thoughts are about this matter. Lisa. Well, when I was married, I took most of my identity from being a married woman. And again, I had to deal with the person with a double wife. And when that all exploded when I lost that identity as a married woman. I had nothing, and just being laid down so low, the only thing I could do was turn around. Wow. Thank you, Lisa, very, very much. Other, other thoughts about how this concept of identity can apply to the whole situation of aloneness. Remember the Bee Gees. Listen to their song, Alone. If you want to have a heart broken, 
uh, get really into the Bee Gees. No, but uh, li uh, li listen to their song alone, and the idea comes. Yes, stand up if you would. Tell me your name again. Julie. Julie. I'm not really trying to go anywhere. Uh, I want you to direct the class a little bit. But you're talking about a bitterness that comes uh, when you, you've lost some people, and then you find yourself actually pushing help away. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes, that's very powerful. As I always say, Dionne Warwick said it all, I'll never fall in love again. And people who very often have been rejected or have lo had losses of that kind do in fact start giving off signals of, of not wanting anyone to reach out to them. It's amazing how that works in, in life. Who else wants to comment on aloneness and identity? Deborah, did you raise your hand? Yes. I want to say Susu. Sissy. What? Sissy. Sissy. Okay, well, two syllables if he has an S. Okay, Sissy. <laughs> Wow, wow. Thank you, Sissy, very much. Wow. Um, one other point before I, I will, I do have something to say, of course, but I want to elicit more of application to you because this, I will repeat the same idea week after week after week, but applying it to different issues. What is the ministry? The ministry in Christianity is one idea applied to a new department of your life every week. It's one idea. Christ died for sinners. Applied, in other words, Christ God's love is for you at your point of need. And then yet every week we have a different point of need. And we're in touch. That's, that's all the ministry is. It's one idea applied to an infinite number of human needs. Another comment on these powerful things that have been said. Uh, yes, David. Stand up if you would. Uh, what rubs your raw spark, spot as hard as possible? I've seen it in my parents' marriage, in my wife's sister's marriage, and in our marriage, that God uses that other person to bring out something in yourself that you would never have tried to work on when you were alone. And in some ways, when, when I talk to single people who are unhappy about being married, I say, in some ways, when you're married, there are parts of you that are, are more alone. 
Yes. Wow. Thank you very, very much for that. Um, uh, Mary, do you want to add anything? Do you have a thought? Where is she? Uh, on this subject? Okay. Well, sorry? Yes, you did, and I thank you. Okay, let me sum up. Let, let, uh, let, let, me, let me sum up um, th this, this issue. Um, what, uh, what, what I want you to, to try to uh, continually uh, understand is that any um, idea of identity that you have about your own life or your own family, your own self, is doomed to deceive and to be a false one. So I'm constantly trying to dis deconstruct any ideas you have about your own identity. You've understood this. this is, I'm trying to, if you think of yourself as poor or not poor or this or that, I'm trying to deconstruct all those identities as being fundamentally deceptive and false. And so uh, I'm, I'm profoundly asking you to, to come to the point of laying aside any feeling you have about your own identity. I uh, ran into the most astonishing fact last night. Um, this is uh, the, the preppiest man I knew in my college class. He was actually one year be before, uh, below me at Harvard. He was the snootiest preppy, the most uh, waspish, uh, uh, brilliant, uh, mean-spirited, and now very, very successful fellow. He really did believe the myth. Well, I found out last night, and I, I was am amazed to find this out, and this is not a put-down of any other religion, don't misunderstand, but it was such a, such a shock. I found out that all uh, the, the time that I knew, he concealed the fact that he's half Jewish. Now, uh, that may sound like nothing. It's, it's, it could be a great blessing that he was Jewish. He, he could have seen that as something wonderful and powerful. But in the world that I was in at the time, uh, to have been Jewish in that particular world at the time was, a, was, was not what anyone would have wanted to be in that particular very, very rarefied little world. I found last night that this man who just put everybody down, including people of any kind of ethnicity that wasn't basically what he would have called the New York 400, was in fact Jewish. Now, um, he just never told anybody. Uh, now, that was a shock to me because it, uh, it says uh, what a powerful mistake uh, most people are living with when it comes to these identities and how um, unsuspectingly wrong they almost all are. And I'm trying to get you to see that. And I'm trying to think about how you see your identity. Where do you get your identity? You're like a heat-seeking missile. You're like the tongue in the Glimmer Twins, the Rolling Stones picture of themselves. You know, I, I'm desperate for an identity. Have you all read Needful Things? Well, that's a book about identity. Needful Things by Stephen King. It's on every night. Every night it's on television with Max von Sydow and Deborah Winger and whatever his name is, Ken, uh, whatever his name is. Uh, it's on 24 hours a day, and it's all about how people are given objects by the devil in which they find their true identity. And the most powerful one is the woman who begins to fade out, the divorced woman with her single mother. She begins to fade out because he gives her, the devil, a plaster statue of Elvis Presley. And she begins to worship this statue. It's idolatry. And she stays in bed all day listening to Love Me Tender and fantasizing. And all it is is a statue, a plastic statue of Elvis Presley. And what uh, Stephen King very powerfully is depicting there is the uh, birth of idolatry.
This is how idolatry starts. At the very beginning of the world, people want to find an identity. So they build some kind of object in which they can identify themselves and find their identity. And this relates to every single social setting and identity you've ever been in. And specifically, it relates to the most powerful one, uh, which is gender. I was so touched uh, the other day. I preached at a wedding a few weeks ago, and I was talking about that men and women are really the same. I get a lot of struggle on that one. Uh, I, I said, it is the biggest one. It is the biggest false identity because it's built in. It's the biggest one. But in fact, women bleed just as much as men. They mourn just as much as men. They need love just as much as men. They are sad just as much as men. And they're capable of happiness just as much as men. And when the rubber comes down to the road, so this fellow comes up to me who lives in Detroit. He says, well, you know, my children are going to a very progressive school these days. And it's a, they're all ages 5 through 11. And some of the parents who are of color have decided that every week the, all the children in the school who are of color should have lunch separately. Now, this, these are six years old to 11 years old. I'm not talking about Sarah Lawrence College here. Six years old, 11. And the parents insist that their children have a little table who are tiny children every Friday so they can be of a color, so they can get into their identity as being people of color. And, and he said, you know, I said, I'm very liberal. I live in a liberal world. I'm not like, I've never, ever lived in a non-liberal world. But something about what you said in the sermon seems to disagree with that idea. <laughs> you know, right? And I said, well, yes, because deep down, it is what binds us together, not what keeps us apart. Now, this is where the culture is going, what's happening in Detroit. That is very, very common in certain circles. And we are dealing with a situation where people are hungry for false identity. And it always lets you down. And the Christian religion, finally, is a religion which believes, miracle to miracle, that a complete identity has been a one for us that has nothing to do with anything we do. And let me just tell you the irony is, people, in fact, become more individual when they're loved this way. That's the irony. People come into their own when they are loved in this manner. People's actual quirks uh, when they're loved gracefully are able to come out. When you are really loved, truly, by someone else uh, in this manner, it inevitably allows you to be more yourself than ever before. And that is the power of the gospel. We have time for maybe one other comment or two before we finish. Walter Little. Stand up, Walter, if you don't mind. Paul, as you have a knack for doing, it seems to me you're walking into a very strong wind. Because, for instance, theologically, the big push right now, for instance, in the liturgical movement, is that we are defined by our relationships. We're not even human without our relationships with others. And we, in fact, relate to Christ through our relationships with the church, not directly. Yep. Which I think is diametrically opposed to what you're saying and is basically false Oh, Walter. <laughs> oh, I just love you so much. Uh, uh, yes, it is a strong wind. But there's no, the, the, the Christian church has never been going against a strong wind. I mean, we're always going against a strong wind. And let me tell you, it's not a strong, we're not trying to be difficult, maverick, pirate, anxious, difficult types. We're trying to give a word of, of hope to the human race. If people think that identity, based on all these things, is the answer to being human, they will get into a situation where everyone will hate each other totally all the time. And that's where we are. And what I'm trying to say, I'm, what I'm talking about is unity of the human race based upon a common lack of identity uh, in any human sense 
and instead another identity. And this is why Christianity really did have such an impact on the ancient world, because when he said in Christ there is no male or female and no uh, bond or free, he was making a statement that ultimately issued in the abolition of slavery. Christianity is a truly liberal religion from that point of view. Well, I'm going to finish now, and I'm delighted to talk about these matters. And next week, in the last of the big classes on identity, I'm going to talk about how you define yourself in terms of your loss. We're going to look at verse 10. And uh, there's a great movement today to define oneself in terms of disability. And at any level you want to define that word. And there's something powerful there. And I want to invite you to join with me in thinking about how your defeats define you and in what sense that is in uh, keeping with what we've been saying. Let's say the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you.